This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jackson Vungani and here is what is coming up. What we need to do about it is to bring on new generation capacity fast. Only way of doing that is uh, by customers of electricity becoming part of the solution. That is Chris Yelland, an independent energy expert on South Africa's worsening power generation problem. All of this and more coming up on African News Tonight. The annual debate at the UN General Assembly has begun with world leaders taking their turns to raise issues that are serious for their countries, ranging from armed conflict to climate change. In the stunt assessment at the opening of today's proceedings, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres told world leaders the world is in danger. Our world is in peril and paralyzed. Geopolitical divides are undermining the work of the Security Council, undermining international law, undermining trust and people's faith in democratic institutions, undermining all forms of international cooperation. We cannot go on like this. The UN chief pointed to the war in Ukraine, multiplying conflicts around the world, the climate emergency, the dire financial situation of developing countries, and recent reversals of progress on such UN goals as ending extreme poverty and providing quality education for all children. But he said there is hope and shared an image of sheep carrying grain. But as we come together in a world teeming with turmoil, an image of promise and hope comes to my mind. This ship is the brave commander. It sailed the Black Sea with UN flag flying high and proud. On one hand, what you see is a vessel like any other plying the seas. But look closer. At its essence, this ship is a symbol of what we can accomplish when we act together. It is loaded with Ukrainian grain destined for the people of the Horn of Africa, millions of whom are on the edge of famine. Guterres urged world leaders to take action to protect food supplies, ensure the supply of fertilizers, and to work together on common problems, stressing that cooperation and dialogue are the only path forward. He warned that, quote, no power or group alone can call the shots. And now, VOA's UN correspondent Margaret Bishil joins me live to talk about how the proceedings are going. Hello, Margaret. Hi, Jackson. World leaders have started giving their speeches at the iconic podium. That's the first time in three years delivering their speeches in person, uh, starting with the UN chief himself, Antonio Guterres, that we, like we just heard, who gave a State of the World report. What was uh, his assessment of how things are looking from his point of view? Well, I think you pretty much covered it. Things are pretty bleak. He said the world is teeming with turmoil and uh, global discontent is on the horizon. So, But he did try and find some positives. He said there is hope, and uh, he called for action around it, and he said that the world needs to unite and be a coalition uh, as united nations. Mm. You know? So he, he really tried to stress that Uh, There are so many threats out there, there's no time to be fractured and uh, at 
at each other's throats. You know, mm. we really need to come together. And you could especially tell that, with climate change. You, know, you, you save some of the strongest language for climate change. Absolutely. And you could tell that there's a sense of urgency in his tone. But uh, Senegal's uh, president, uh, Macky Sall, who is also the head of the African Union, was the first African leader to address the assembly. What are some of the issues he addressed in his speech? Yeah, his speech was really uh, more a pan-African speech rather than a domestic speech because most leaders uh, talk about issues that are pertinent to their own country. But uh, Macky Sall is, as you mentioned, the AU president, and he spoke a lot about the AU. He said the AU should have a seat in, in the G20 so that Africa can be represented in a place where decisions affecting the 1.4 billion Africans are being made. Uh, he was uh, he drew a line under the youth in Africa. He said Africa is a solutions place, and we have a vibrant and creative youth in Africa. They innovate. They're entrepreneurs. They work hard. Um, so we need investment in them, and we need to create wealth and generate jobs for them. And he said Africa wants to engage with all of its partners in a reinvented relationship. So uh, he was definitely very pan-African in his speech. And he said Africa does not want to be the place of a new Cold War. Uh, they said He said Africa has suffered enough with the burden of history. And I think that is sort of an allusion to what's going on now uh, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. A lot of African leaders have said they're being pressed by both uh, Russia and the West to pick a side. Mm. And now, they don't really want to. Now, Margaret, before I let you go, uh, traditionally the U.S. president speaks second on the first day of the debate. Why didn't uh, President Biden speak during his uh, time slot? Well, uh, Queen Elizabeth's funeral on Monday sort of threw things into a bit of a mess in New York because so many world leaders went to her funeral, and so many of them are still making their way to New York. So a lot of speeches are, are shifting. But also uh, President Biden, who traditionally is the host country uh, leader speaks second on the opening day. Didn't speak today, and in fact, that's when Mackie Sal spoke. Uh, he will speak on Wednesday in the morning at some point. And uh, we have two more African leaders we're going to hear from on Monday: uh, President of the DRC, Shishiketi, and the uh, Head of State for Central African Republic, Twadera. All right, that's VOA's UN correspondent uh, Margaret Bashir speaking to me live from the United Nations headquarters in New York. Thank you, Margaret. Thanks, Jackson. Uganda's mint. Uganda's Ministry of Health has confirmed an Ebola outbreak in the country. Samples from a dead man tested positive to the highly contagious hemorrhagic fever. The ministry says the strain circulating in the country is the Sudan variant. Catherine Nambi reports from Kampala. The 24-year-old man died in the Mbende Regional Referral Hospital in central Uganda on Monday and he tested positive for the Ebola virus. A team from Uganda's Ministry of Health is tracing the man's contacts for testing and quarantining. Six other people from the same community died in a similar manner earlier, but they were buried before samples were taken from them. The ministry says it cannot confirm that these also died of Ebola. Diana Atwini is the Permanent Secretary of Uganda's Health Ministry. We are right now gathering more information on the possible source of infection of the confirmed cases. On suspicion of this, this patient, the District Rapid Response Team initiated investigations as they had also been informed of the community deaths. These reports 
was specifically talking about strange illness and sudden deaths in the villages in Movende district. The neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo reported an Ebola outbreak recently, but the strain of the virus found in the latest Uganda victim is reported to be different from that in DRC. The outbreak in the DRC has so far been limited to a few people. The ministry says it is investigating the origin of the strain. Dr. Henry Chobe is the incident commander in Ministry of Health. We don't have any other strain in the country. What is saturating we have is Ebola Sudan. Uh, we can't speculate that it came from Congo because currently Congo, what is saturating Congo is Ebola Zaire. And what we think possibly this was a breach between the wild into the human, into the humans. When that happened and what was the, the index cases, for now we don't know. The World Health Organization, WHO, says they will not use ring vaccination against the new outbreak in Uganda since it's not effective with the strain in the country. The organization is urging Uganda to instead emphasize prevention measures, including avoiding physical contacts since the disease is spread through sharing body fluids and reporting any suspected cases. Dr. Bayo Fatumbi is the acting WHO country representative. They will find that, that the ring vaccination that worked with the uh, Zaire uh, virus will not be useful for this particular Sudan strain. But there is another type of vaccine, Johnson & Johnson, that is being tested currently and see whether it will be useful for this particular strain. But prevention is better than cure. So let us face that infection prevention and control measure. The Ebola Sudan strain was last registered in Uganda in 2011 in Luwera district in central Uganda. Uganda has had about six Ebola outbreaks since 2000. The Ebola virus is transmitted through blood and other body fluids. It is known to infect animals such as chimpanzees, gorillas, fruit bats, forest antelope and porcupines. The WHO says Ebola has an average fatality rate of 50%. The symptoms include fever, body aches, diarrhea, and sometimes bleeding inside and outside the body. This is Catherine Nambi for VN News in Kampala. The president of African Export Bank says Africa should move away from food aid and toward sustainable food production. Benedict Orama says a partnership between Africa and its international partners will help strengthen local agriculture. This, he says, will also encourage subsistence farmers to develop agricultural businesses that can improve their lives. His remarks come at a meeting on the sidelines of the ongoing UN General Assembly in New York City. Organized by the Business Council for International Understanding, the meeting was aimed at empowering farmers. In an interview, Orama tells VOA's Peter Claudi that cooperation between Africa and international partners can also help correct the imbalance of food surplus and food shortages between different parts of Africa. You see, the problem with food aid is that it creates dependence. I'm not saying that when we are in dire need that people can't come to help. But we should reject the way we do that 
so that in that process, we build the foundation to make sure that we say never again. We don't have to rush to help again. So what is done today, uh, although it's beginning to change, is that when we, uh, we have famine, uh, we have extreme hunger, crisis, uh, donors rush food from all over the world, um, but they do not get it from Africa. So what that has then done is that people give the food they have, those who are donating give what they have, and over time, our tastes have changed. What it then means is that we've developed a taste to eat the cheap food that has been donated, so we are no longer cultivating ours, what we normally eat. So it has created huge import dependence. So when we don't have money to pay for the imports, we go hungry again. Not because we cannot produce, but because our tastes have changed and we are import dependent and we are not able to generate a foreign exchange to continue to import those things. So we have recurrent food. food. So, uh, Dr. Orama, what specific steps do you think African countries can take to reverse this or correct this? Uh, it doesn't have to be only African countries. It has to, that's why I, I gave you this background that right. I gave earlier. It also has to go global, or the donor community and the African countries. Africa is a huge continent. As much of fact, as you talk about food uh, farming here, in other parts of Africa, there's surplus. The problem is that there's no moving. We're not moving those surplus from other parts of Africa to where you have scarcity, as will happen normally in a country. So what we are saying is, first, to stimulate overall food production on the continent, the donor community, if there's a food crisis uh, in one part of Africa, they should try to supply that part from other parts of Africa where you have surplus before you start going out if you don't have enough. The second thing is that the demand created uh, by the, uh, the donor community and also ourselves should be enough to also stimulate production of food in many parts of Africa. What we've done, and we, we, we and WF World Food Program have done something unique in this area. In July, we entered in a manual of understanding ourselves, Afrexim Bank, the BFP, and African Continental Free Trade Area Secretariat. That MOU is in an amount of $2 billion. So we are doing um, jointly with WFP a blended financing uh, to enable us to provide funding to small growers in Africa and the commodity traders to make it possible for WFP to then buy from them to supply parts of Africa where we have food problems using FCFTA rules and protocols. That was Benedict Orama, president of the African Export-Import Bank. He was speaking with VOA's Peter Cloty. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. Somalia's military says it has liberated a strategic central town for more than a decade of control by Al-Shabaab terrorists. The win is the latest in an all-out military offensive against the Islamist militants, as Mohammed Dasayan reports from the Somali capital, Mogadishu.
Somalia's National Army said Tuesday it recaptured the small but strategic town of Bo'o in the country's central Iran region from Al-Shabaab militants. The military said local militia backed them up in this latest offensive against the Islamist militants who, State TV says, have controlled the town for 13 years. Somalia National Television SNTV reported that Army Chief Brigadier General Odawa Yusuf visited the Hiran region village of Yasaman Tuesday, where the troops also drove out militants with local support. Hiran Governor Ali Jaita Osman spoke to VOA by phone. He said Bo'o was an Al-Shabaab stronghold that was used as the region's base for their so-called shadow court and to extort money from locals. Usman says in the last two days, the army took over the villages of Garasiani, Bo'o, Nurfana, and a lot of other locations. He says he went to tell the Somali people that the Al-Shabaab fighters are cowards who can't compete with the army. The offensive came just a day after Somalia's government said the military forced Al-Shabaab out of 13 villages in clashes this month that killed more than 200 of the militants. Somalia's defense minister, Abdul Qadir Mohamed Noor, praised local militias who backed the military in the fights against Al-Shabaab. Somalia's information ministry in a statement Monday night acknowledged the army had received ice bought from the U.S. during the offensives in Iran. Somalia has struggled to defeat the Al-Shabaab terrorist group for 15 years. Last month, the group attacked an international hotel in the capital Mogadishu, killing 20 people and wounding more than 100. Somalia's President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud responded to the deadly seed by announcing a total war against the militants. Mohamed Daisane for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has cut short his visit to London, where he attended the Queen's funeral and was scheduled to meet with some European leaders about his country's ever-worsening electricity crisis. Citizens are enduring long blackouts and the economy is bleeding billions of dollars as industry shuts down. National Energy Regulator ESCOM blames the meltdown on a legacy of corruption and faulty equipment at power stations. Darren Teller has more. ESCOM says the national power grid would have collapsed if it did not drastically ration electricity for the past two weeks. Outages have lasted 12 hours a day in some areas. Gas stations are low on diesel because many citizens and businesses are using it to run emergency generators. Cell phone networks are disrupted as the power cuts are so frequent that backup batteries at signal towers don't recharge. The internet's also down in many places as service provider equipment fails because of outages. ESCOM's been implementing what it calls load shedding for 15 years. When the electricity grid cannot handle demand, it switches power off in stages across the country. The situation is getting worse and it will continue to get worse unless we do something about it. 
Chris Yellens, an independent energy expert. What we need to do about it is to bring on new generation capacity fast. Only way of doing that is uh, by customers of electricity becoming part of the solution. And that will be needed in order to give Eskom the necessary headroom to do the deep level maintenance that is so badly needed. During his presidency between 2009 and 2018, Jacob Zuma appointed friends to run Eskom. A commission of inquiry has found they looted the corporation instead of maintaining power stations. They and Zuma deny the allegations. Yellen says it'll take about 15 years to build new power stations. He adds it'll take three years for renewable energy projects to begin feeding a significant amount of power into the grid. So, says Yelland, the only feasible short-term solution is for individual households and businesses to become energy producers themselves. In Vietnam, they put on 9,000 megawatts of rooftop solar PV in the domestic and commercial sectors alone in one year. That shows what can be done by a country that is less developed than South Africa, has a lower GDP per capita than South Africa. We can do it if we put our mind to it, reduce the red tape, allow it through legislation, encourage it and incentivize it. But this will mean customers stop paying the government through ESCOM for electricity. The ruling African National Congress, the ANC, says ESCOM must remain South Africa's dominant electricity provider, even though it's currently failing to do that. ESCOM Chief Operating Officer Jan Wibberolze says the latest power cuts will end once damaged generating units are repaired. We are expecting 18 generators at various of our power stations, which is just above 9 gigawatts, to return to service. I can assure the public of South Africa that all hands are on deck at the power stations, ensuring the successful return of these units. Two months ago, Ramaphosa announced a comprehensive energy plan to end the crisis. Measures he promised included the reappointment of experts the ANC fired to make way for its chosen officials and the purchase of electricity from neighbours. None of this has happened. Opposition parties say the ANC is dedicated to flogging the dead horse that's ESCOM because top party members have contracts to supply coal to its power stations. The ANC doesn't deny this but insists that's not interfering with its mission to end the electricity crisis. But political analysts say if an election happened soon in South Africa, the ANC would be just like the rest of the country, powerless. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. A spokesman for the Tigray People's Liberation Front says troops from neighboring Eritrea have launched a full-scale offensive along several areas of the border. According to the Associated Press, Getecha Oreda said on Twitter that the Eritrean forces are fighting alongside Ethiopian government troops, including commando units and allied militia. They have been battling the TPLF since violence broke out between federal forces and Tigray forces in November of 2020. The AP notes that Eritrean forces are alleged to have been involved in some of the worst atrocities committed in the conflict. Tens of thousands of people have died in the violence which reignited last month after a lull earlier this year. 
And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. For all latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at fearwayafrica.com. Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, 